0: Morning. I'm glad I get to be back. This is fun for me, and I hope it's fun for you, but we'll see. We'll we'll wait till the end to judge on that. Um, The apple does not fall far from the? Like father, like? All right, here's the verse that's been messing with me for about six months. God blesses those who work for peace, for they will be called the children of God. This morning, I'm going to maybe give you the world's longest sermon introduction to the world's shortest sermon. (laughs) Because what I want to try to help you capture is, and quite honestly help me process, is about six months of my life. And in that six months, this verse has sort of haunted me. And I'll share with you why, why that is. Before I do that, very deep theological question here. How many of you do not drink coffee? Just raise your hand. You do not, I'm, I know it feels like I'm separating the sheep from the goats, but that's... All right, don't drink coffee. Those of you who do not drink coffee, have you ever been approached by someone who does drink coffee to try to win you over to their side? (laughs) Yes, most likely you have. They have said very helpful things like, well, have you tried coffee? (laughs) All right. Personally, I'm on team coffee. Those of you on team coffee, if I could see your hands, yes, all right. But we are not a unified team. Those of us on Team Coffee, how many of you drink coffee with cream and sugar? You put cream and sugar in your coffee. How many of you who put cream and sugar in your coffee have been approached from somebody on Team Black Coffee that you, in fact, do not like coffee? You like cream and sugar <laughs> with a little coffee flavoring, right? Yes. Yes, and I, it's, I really appreciate the... the You can't see this, but there are people raising their Starbucks cups, and (laughs) and and then there's people that drink decaf, and you live in a different planet or something. None of us claim you. And I want to share with you how I like my coffee. I'd like for you to just go with your first instincts, what what comes, what you feel, and this is how my wife and I drink our coffee every morning this is what we like we're from we consider ourselves team coffee but you may not consider us on your team we drink instant coffee in our home this is what we like best I am not lying I have a at the time a sixteen hundred dollar espresso machine that was a gift I don't use it anymore I like instant coffee My favorite, you can't get here, it's it's made by Folgers in Thailand. And I order from Amazon, and it's like 10 cents a cup. It's my very favorite. Red cup, it's called. All right. And in my instant coffee, this is what I really, really like best. (laughs) I do not like, I do not like milk stuff. I mean, that's what we, I'll use it if I have to. I like the chemicals I find in this. It's my favorite part. It's hydrogenated oil and other things. And then I like two Splenda. I like that. So, how do you feel about that, right? Yeah? Yeah. All right. Here we go. So that feeling you just had is what we're going to talk about. Because coffee is easy, but it's weird, isn't it weird, how you have almost like a visceral response to somebody who, you didn't say it this way, but I'm going to say it for you, for somebody who drinks coffee wrong. Like, that's what you're thinking. I'm drinking it wrong. That's not the right way to do it. At least for some of you. And those of you that are tea drinkers at this moment, you feel superior to all of us because you're above the fray. <laughs> but just, just think about all, just think about, I, I could drop in almost any topic. I, I could say national health care, Obamacare. I could say Republican. I could say Tea Party. I, I could say snowboarding versus skiing. And if I could just have a few minutes to go through the list, I would get to some topic that at some point you have been in a conversation and you have felt your chest tighten as you talked about it. You didn't know where it came from. You weren't expecting. But all of a sudden you felt like your blood pressure rate, that thing, that thing, that feeling. That's sort of been my journey these last six months. Right before Thanksgiving, I was at the Denver Faith and Justice Conference, and while I was there, it was the um, Ferguson. The whole Ferguson thing was, had, had just blown up. Michael Brown had been killed. And while I was there, and I had been watching the, the news, and, and you know, right. I, I will confess, I wasn't that affected. Seemed kind of simple to me. Somebody breaks the law. I mean, you know, it's tragic. It's horrible. But I I just couldn't get my head around all the animation and all the energy going to this. And then I went to this conference, and I I listened to a couple of my friends of color, some African American brothers and sisters speaking, and it was it was like we were from two different planets. It was their their experience was. It felt to me like a 180 degrees from my experience. I could not understand the, the, the depth of their lament and passion. And a couple days later, a friend said that there was going to be a, a group getting together, a small group called the Denver Freedom Riders. And we were going to go, they were going to go to Ferguson, and they had, they had room on the bus in what I want to go. And I don't know what happened. I thought, you know, I've got to understand this because I don't understand this. And I, I trust my brothers and sisters that I was hearing, and, and I know they're good people, and I couldn't understand why we had different stories. So I said I would go. I, let me, I'll share. So this picture here, I think, so when I got there, I, I, we left, it's about, I can't remember how, it took us forever to get there. We immediately went there, got there about, pretty late at night, about 11 o'clock at night, and just to help you orient, the, uh, the, the, the non-indictment was announced, I believe, on a Monday. So I believe this picture might be from like a Thursday night. And I believe that's the police station across the way. So when I got there, we, the, there's a street, you're familiar with the street, you've seen lots of the news images of the police station and then the protesters. And so I was, with, I was on the protester side, All right? Um, that is not me with the clergy orange vest, which looks like shoot me to me, but all right, go ahead, next sign, all right, all right, go ahead. So, we, over this trip, that is one of my photographs, the first one actually wasn't one of my photographs, that's uh, the Michael Brown Memorial site, help you orient to that a little bit. This is the, uh, this is the last night I was there, this is Sunday night on a, on a protest march, there'd been another killing on that Saturday. Do do we have the video? Do you have that little video? It is our duty to fight
1: for our freedom. It is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. It is our duty to win.
0: We must love and support each other. We must
1: love and support each other. Everybody, man,
0: everybody lost their life, man. If you are for real, cause really make this happen, man. You know what it is, man. Stay consistent, stay prayed up, and y'all, everybody, y'all just be safe, man. If all the supporters
1: out of town, y'all just make sure y'all keep, you know what I'm saying. Just keep showing love, man. Y'all might can't touch me.
0: It's, uh, it's deeply contemplative in a strange way, in a loud place like this a lot of stuff happens deep in your soul and I think a lot will happen as I get away from it and have to sort of live with the feelings. There's a lot of new feelings, things I'm not familiar with. You know, I'm a person of uh, privilege and you don't realize that until you're with people who have never had the kinds of privilege I've had, so things that I've been totally unaware of, what it's like, to be afraid constantly. What it's like to have no hope for an economic opportunity. You know what it's like to be searched and stopped simply because I was a color. To have that as a universal experience. I had never met A white person who was profiled and so far i haven't met somebody in this little experience i've had a person of color who hasn't been profiled in some way it's an amazing experience here's what i learned in ferguson i'm 54 years old and i have never had a bad experience with a police officer I have gotten tickets, but it wasn't their fault. I mean, it was my fault. They weren't unkind to me. I taught my children, if you're in danger, find a police officer. They will help you. I have never once thought or feared that one of my children might be shot by the police. When I was in Ferguson, 100% of the people I met and had conversation with were afraid of the police, people of color. 100% of the people I had talked to had experienced profiling. And 100% of them taught their sons, especially their sons, how to avoid the police for fear that that engagement would increase their chances of being killed. A completely different story than my story. A couple of months ago, I went to the Pine Ridge Native American Reservation. How many of you have ever heard? Have you heard of Pine Ridge? If you haven't, you're just like me. I hadn't heard of it. I don't think six months ago. To give you an idea of what Pine Ridge is like, I'm going to share some statistics and some pictures. This picture is actually kind of telling. Um, the this is this is not a storage unit, this is a home on the Pine Ridge Reservation. Go ahead. This is a home that we visited. Um, I was there with my friend, let me give you a little side, I was there with a friend who has the most unique ministry I've ever experienced. She goes about once every five weeks. When she goes, um, she has... I don't know how many friends she has on the reservation. She's white. I'll share with you a little bit what that word means there, but because she comes back, she's been doing it for over five years, what makes her little place in the world of Pine Ridge unique is she goes back. They don't experience that very often. And she doesn't bring anything. She hardly does anything other than make friends and listen to people. And it was I I can't tell you how many people I saw we'd be walking and how many First Nation people I would see come running to her and want to hug her. It was really powerful. She's very close friends with this family. There were 14 people living in that home. The washing machine you see there is is not a, a relic. That is their only washing machine. Behind the bicycle is their only source of water. And behind the house, there are two outhouses. One for the men that are older and quite sick and then one for everybody else. And the outhouses are almost right next to the house. We wouldn't wouldn't be building it like that. Go ahead. This will help you get to know Pine Ridge a little bit. Alcoholism rate is estimated as high as 80%. One in four infants have fetal alcohol. Suicide rate is more than twice the national rate, but the teen suicide rate is four times that national rate. But in the last several months, That has increased dramatically. Infant mortality is three times the national. Life expectancy is the lowest in the United States. It is 47 for a male, it is 52 for a woman. Unemployment, 80 to 90%, you see the income of 4,000, eight times the United States rate of diabetes. If you notice in that very, remember the first picture you saw, the woman without her leg? That's a very common sight in Pine Ridge is because of the diabetes. People walking on crutches or in wheelchairs and you see ramps on, it feels like, half the homes. Cervical cancer, heart disease, tuberculosis. But here's the worst one. That is in a very small population of people, those numbers, at the most 40,000 people all ages. You extrapolate that, the percentage of young people. And the hopelessness you, you feel from young people. That was powerful. What did I learn when I was in Pine Ridge? Washitsu is what they call white people, and it means the one who takes the fat or the best part of the buffalo. There have been over 500 treaties made with First Nation people, and there have been zero treaties honored. 500 legal U.S. documents signed by somebody. None of them are in effect. Amidst an epidemic of diabetes, I went to the only grocery store in Pine Ridge that serves, I don't know, I'll make it up, but it's got to be thousands because I didn't see any other grocery stores for miles i didn 't see another one, and I drove a lot of drove a, mile, a lot of mileage on the nation territory there and when I was there it was a big big grocery store size of this room here filled with soda chips, crackers canned goods because that 's cheap there was an, there was a a um, produce section servicing thousands of people that was I don't believe as long as this banister here. And in that, there were, I saw some apples, I saw some iceberg lettuce, I saw a head of cauliflower that was seven dollars, and two heads of broccoli that were four fifty each. In um, 1980, the Lakota people actually won their first victory in the Supreme Court, went all the way to the Supreme Court. And by the way, an individual Lakota person who is part of that nation cannot come against the U.S. government because they belong to a sovereign nation, so they're in a double, they can't win. If they renounce their citizenship, then they no longer have any rights as a Native American. Um, But as as a tribe, as a people group they went, they won. And what they won was the legality of the Fort Laramie Treaty of April 29, 1968, that said that the Black Hills of South Dakota would be set apart for the absolute and undisturbed use of the occupation of the Indians. And as you know, perhaps, General Custer moved them out and off of that illegally into what we now call Pine Ridge. There was never any legal reason to do that. So the U.S. government accepted that responsibility and offered them a cash settlement. The problem with the cash settlement is if the Lakota people take the cash settlement, then they are forfeiting their right to occupy the land that they believe is their land. They can't have the land and the settlement. They have to pick. Have you ever been in that situation? I, I haven't. It's interesting. You may not know about Pine Ridge, but you've certainly heard about Wounded Knee. It's only recently that we have changed the name of that battle, from Battle of Wounded Knee to the Massacre of Wounded Knee. There was the, the the it was part of the, the whole American movement, was, was herding First Nation people together. There were several tribes put together. It's a long story of why they were there. And on the hill, you, if you stand there, there's a, there's a hill. All the cavalry were on that hill. Somebody heard a gunshot go off, and they had a new technology. It was a new type of machine gun that had exploding shells and they wiped them out. In the massacre of Wounded Knee, there are more Medal of Honor winners than any single engagement in US history. And that is the narrative that you and I are familiar with. I don't think I brought any pictures of it. What I, let's see if I brought it, I can't remember what my next slide is. Nope, okay. If I showed you what, what is there at Wounded Knee now, you would be appalled it's this ugly little red roadside sign and the and the burial site the memorial site is this decrepit behind a little chain link fence cemetery tuesday i got back from a trip to israel palestine i'll never again just say israel I'll try as best I can to always remember that as at least the U.N. would see it, it's Israel-Palestine. That's the picture maybe you're familiar with if you've seen postcards from the Holy Land. That's looking back. I'm pretty close to the Garden of Gethsemane, I would guess there, or Mount of Olives, somewhere in that area, looking, I think I guess I'm looking west, right, towards the city? Let's go through a couple of these slides. I'll show you what I experienced. That is right as you come into Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a um, area C. It's kind of complicated, but when you think of the West Bank, in in at least my understanding, I thought West Bank, you know, that was all Palestinian. But in reality, you're very limited where you can go, and there's just tiny little places where you can move if you're Palestinian. And they're walled. This is one of those... We can go through the next one. These kids, I don't know for sure. I'm going to guess they're at least fourth generation inside a refugee camp. In 1948, when the State of Israel was um, formed, then the Palestinians were almost 100%, not quite, were displaced from their homes, but in any kind of sort of, you know, occupied area or places where there were like neighborhoods. They were a tribal people, but. these these little villages, we'll call them, Then they got displaced. and The U.N. said, what we want you to do is go to these camps, and back in 1948, this was tents. Those were tents. And give us three weeks to a month, and we'll get this sorted out, and we're going to find you your spot, and then you'll have your villages back. That has never occurred. And now there's sort of a, it's basically a, a project, a slum, is how you and I might think of it. Go ahead. This is, as, we, as you go into that particular refugee camp, this is the, just the children that were killed this last summer in Gaza. That's just the children. There were several thousand people killed in Gaza, and I know it's complicated, I'm, I'm not dismissing that, but that's the children. And here's the interesting last picture. 1947, start with that. 1947, that is the UN plan for Israel-Palestine. And then you can just see the progression. In the last picture, what's happened to the West Bank, the reason that green area has gotten smaller, so green is Palestinian control, and the reason that has gotten smaller is because of the settlements. So within what is, in theory, exclusively Palestinian territory, there are Israeli settlements. Think of Highlands Ranch, but maybe a couple of notches higher socioeconomically. And think of a fence around these Highlands ranches. One of the settlements is 65,000 people and it's growing. And what they're doing is they're expanding the settlements. The settlement I went to, met with a gentleman, was about 45,000 and it's a beautiful, beautiful neighborhood. There's a private road walled or fenced on either side with unbelievable high-tech security. No Palestinian can be on that road. That's illegal. That gives them access in and out. If you're Palestinian you try to move around, there's checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint, which is run by by the Israelis. When I was there, what did I discover? I discovered that the minimum wage for Palestinian is about a third of that for an Israeli. Unemployment is 27%, unless you're in West Jerusalem, which is 80%. In Israel, unemployment is 6%. It's very, very difficult for a Palestinian to move around. You may not know this. Do you know it's illegal for a Palestinian or an Arab of any kind to fly in and out of Tel Aviv? They have to cross the border and go to Jordan. Some days, a friend said, it took them eight to nine hours. I went, I crossed the border into Jordan on a day that was nothing happening nothing. It was easy. took us two hours. Water in all of the West Bank is supplied by the Israelis. The gentleman that I met, that was a very gracious, upper-level person in the Israeli world and Zionist world, said that all water is shared equally. What I noticed was that every Palestinian home I saw had a a water tank on top. I asked my friend about that. He said, oh, because the water gets shut off all the time. We never know. I did not see one water tank on an Israeli home. You may not know this, but 8% of Palestinians would also identify as Christian. All right, take a deep breath. So now, you may have, in the course of this last 10 minutes, experienced a compressed chest, raised blood pressure, you may be feeling something you may be wondering is carl is he is he anti police is he anti american is he anti israeli none of that's true i'm none of those things that i know of but i realized in a way that i haven't realized before in this last year something that is true of me this is my reality My story always begins from this spot. And this is my spot. I am a male. Across the world, I already have an advantage just because I was born male. Statistically, in every way you can think of, I got a little leg up. I am white. And in the country into which I was born, that has given me a distinct advantage. I am middle class. And by that, I don't mean my, necessarily just my economic position. But what I mean is I, ha- I was raised in a middle class home. You may remember as a child, as an example of what that might mean, is that in your room, there were books Did you know that just having books in your room as a child will give you an advantage that is immeasurable over most of the children I met? As a matter of fact, many of the children that would be part of the population groups that we've already talked about this morning do not have a single book in their home. I'm heterosexual, and I'm married. I just wake up every morning with an advantage that not everybody has. And I never thought about it until I went to Ferguson and I started thinking about being a peacemaker. And I'm going to confess to you today, I have never, I had not I've gone to seminary, I've gone to Bible college. I, who knows how many times I've heard that verse read. And I never once thought that it meant I needed to do something. They will be called the children of God. I'll give you a fun little experiment. If you, if you feel courageous and you got the time, go down to Metro and look for a group of college kids hanging out drinking coffee or tea, do not talk about coffee or tea, different topic, and ask them this question. When you hear the word Christian, what do you think of? What do you think their response will be? Yeah, your guess is right. Judgmental, anti-fill in the blank, hypocritical comes to mind. Now, I I, I know, maybe you already think, well, that's media spin and all that. Maybe it is. I don't know. But I know those of us that want to act like our dad. They want to be called children of God. I've got to start thinking about peacemaking. So I'm going to share with you now my short little sermon on what I've learned about peacemaking. Please understand, I'm six months into this. I'm just barely learning. I'm not telling you what you ought to do. I'm not giving, I'm really not saying this is all there is to it by any stretch. So far, I think I've grasped two little lessons. I hope it's because I heard the Spirit whisper to me these lessons, but I could be wrong about that also. Lesson one in peacemaking or wanting to act like dad. You cannot bring peace to a conflict you do not care about. I was going to say to a conflict that you don't know about, but quite honestly, I did know about this stuff. I just didn't really care. I mean, I'd heard about it. I mean, I knew about Native Americans, and I knew it was kind of, they kind of got a bad deal. I, I knew... Pretty much every person, every African-American on this soil, somewhere in the last couple, 300 years or so, somebody brought them here against their will and made them work for free. I mean, I thought, just a little side note, I thought I was a very sympathetic person, especially to the issue of racism. I grew up in Alabama in the 60s. I remember in my third grade history class hearing from my teacher about the benevolent slave owner and how the the Yankees don't tell that story about the good slave owner. So we heard about good slave owners. I'm sure there were some. But nobody asked the slaves how good they were. I just didn't want to be bothered, and I've heard about Palestine and Israel, but, but quite honestly, I just kind of, when I would see in the Bible about Israel and about blessing, I just didn't want to think much about Palestinians. Now, you're going to want to, you're going to, want to write this down. This is like some heavy truth right here. Okay, this, will, this, will help. this is so deep. You've probably never heard this. Ignoring a conflict will never help resolve a conflict. Ooh. Could start a cult with depth like that, huh? So that's where my peacemaking began. Was I had to come to grips with why was I ignoring something? What was I afraid of? You know what I was afraid of? My chest getting tight and my story getting all mixed in. My yeah buts. I'm i I'm, I'm watching the rioters. Yeah but look what they're doing. I don't know who said it, but the last, in quote, the last act of the oppressor is to remove their hands from the oppressed and then scream, my God, look what they're doing to themselves. Lesson two. Peacemaking begins with listening. Listening is not preparing my rebuttal while the other person is talking. Most of my life, I have never really listened. What I've done, as you were talking about why you like black coffee, is I was thinking about the reasons I like powdered creamer. And that's all I could think about. When I feel that pressure in my chest, that that feeling that I'm going to explode if I don't set this person straight, if if I don't correct how badly they're misreading the Bible, because some of my most heated arguments have been around the Bible, and how egregiously they have ignored the facts, that compressed chest is not the Holy Spirit telling me to crank up the volume or to double down on verses. When I feel it in my chest now, I wonder if that's the Holy Spirit telling me to just be curious about that person's story. This one is going to be hard to hear, but let me do my best to defend it. Listening does not really need facts. Facts. In fact, conflict is seldom about facts. Do I think every cop is crooked? Absolutely not. Do I think all Americans have plotted against and deceived Native Americans? I don't. And do I think Israel has no proper claim or need to defend herself? I don't. But just because I've been in conversations in the last six months with people who did believe those things... Me adding my facts to their story has not been helpful. I think back years ago when my daughter was 16, and I got this advice when a counselor told me, "Carl, it's never about the facts." And I I, I remember her curfew; she was supposed to be home at 10:30, and she wasn't home at 10:30. And between 10:30 and 11. As a dad, I thought about every scenario I have seen in the news of what could happen to a 16-year-old girl. And and, and each minute that clicks off and she's not home, my anxiety is cranking up and my fear for her life and and how how much I love her and how I'm worried about her. And she walks in the door at 11, and I just want to kill her. (laughs) And the first words out of my mouth, I can hear myself say, the first words out of my mouth were, I told you 10.30." And the first words out of her mouth, you said be home around 10.30. (laughs) Rookie mistake. (laughs) And now we're going to spend an hour dissecting what I actually said and never once as I think back, did she hear me say, oh, baby, I just got to tell you, For 30 minutes, I thought you were dead in a gutter, and I've been worried sick. I, I didn't really communicate that piece because I was so busy fixing that I did not, in fact, say around with my impeccable memory. if I didn't have a microphone on and I was, my voice was weak and hoarse, and I could only talk like this today. But you couldn't hear it. You would instinctively either lean in or, we would say, you know what, everybody just come closer. What I noticed is when I couldn't hear somebody because I didn't understand their story In order to listen better, I didn't move closer. I instinctively moved away, which never helped me hear more clearly. What I learned about going to Ferguson and going to Pine Ridge and going to Israel and Palestine is sometime if you want to hear the story, and I believe you have to hear the story if you want to be a peacemaker, you have to move closer to the story. I love, I love in my imagination playing with the idea that my entire faith is built on God, as Eugene Peterson says, moving into my neighborhood. That God moved closer to me. That he stepped towards me. This idea of what we call the incarnation that God took on human body, it's everything to us. Without that, we don't have a faith. We could have a great religion, but we don't have what we get to have. That's all I know so far about peacemaking. I know it's not much. I know it's not a ton that you can walk out of here with. I don't know, maybe you're like me. Maybe you've really never thought about it. But we live in a world that is continuing to just fracture. I live in a world that just fractures all the time. In addition to, to my barely becoming aware of my, the African-American story, the, the Native American story, the Palestinian story, I, 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 I live... In a, in, a, in a Christian world that, in my opinion, has often been unfair to women, the women I know who want, who want to, to want to follow what God is calling them to do, meet roadblocks I don't have to meet. I've never really listened to that story. I live, I, I live in a very small faith community where there are people who are gay and lesbian It's a conflict it's hard I co-pastor with a friend who has feels the freedom to marry my lesbian friends and I don't have that freedom I live with that But I know running away from them is not going to help me be a peacemaker I live in a world that is fractures along more narrow and narrow theological lines. More minutia. And I want to be a peacemaker. So I want to hear. I want to practice listening. I want to practice moving closer. I want to I want to quit ignoring it. I've got one last question for you. And that is, as I've been having this conversation today, what's been hard for you? Can you think back over the last 30 minutes, a moment when you felt your chest compress? And all I'm going to ask you to do is just take a breath and ask yourself, What am I afraid of? Lord, I feel, um, in this moment as inadequate as I've ever felt and that's not a bad feeling I'm sure it'll be helpful to me in my journey but you know how much I like having answers and you know how much I love things wrapped up neatly and I just don't feel that with this issue I got all this energy and passion and I think it's from you and I just feel like such a Baby, Lord, all alone, I feel a little foolish and ashamed, even, but I'm really grateful. I'm gonna, I'm gonna hang on to that. You're not shaming me, but you're always inviting me. You're always calling me to life. You're always calling me to freedom. That you have set me free. And I pray for my friends here in this community that I love. I pray that of all the wonderful things they do, that to that list would be added, that the people of the sanctuary would be known as the children of God who make peace where they go.
1: So what are, what are you afraid of? I mean, I, c- I can think of all, all kinds of things. My inadequacy, my inability to solve problems, my anger, my disagreement. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid that peacemaking looks, well, it looks painful. And Jesus said, blessed are the people with new cars. No. Um, blessed are the people that never experience pain. He said, "No, blessed are the peacemakers." I mean, as Carl was speaking, I was thinking, "Well, why w- wounded knee? Why, why the problems in Palestine? Why this whole fallen world?" Well, Jesus said, "Blessed are the." the peacemakers and and so it must look incredibly painful from one perspective and yet I don't know if you've ever had this experience of being reconciled with your worst enemy. I, I, I don't know that I've ever felt something quite as wonderful as that. So Jesus said blessed. The word means happy. There's this happiness. Blessed are the peacemakers and we live in a world not at peace. So how do we make peace? Well, on the night that the Prince of Peace was betrayed by all of us. Uh, The Prince of Peace did not count equality with God a thing to be held on to. But he took bread and he broke it. Saying, this is my body given to you, take and eat. And in the same manner, after supper and having given thanks, he took the cup and he said, this cup is uh, the covenant in my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Drink of it, all of you. And so the Prince of Peace gives us his very own body and his blood. And let me tell you, he's blessed. He's happy. He wanted to do that because Scripture says he did that for the joy that was set before him. And, and you know what I think that joy was? Peace with you, communion with you, reconciliation with you. And he came that we might share in his joy. So as you come to the table uh, today, know that you're coming to the Prince of Peace who is making peace with you because he's blessed and he wants you to be blessed may you be like your dad and he's happy we just don't understand what happiness really is so have a little faith come to the table tear off a piece of the bread dip it in the cup the dark cup is wine the light cup is juice they're both the grace of god given to you let's worship (coughs) and so you may never get the opportunity to go to jerusalem may never have been to Ferguson or Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, but I bet there are people in your life that you're not at peace with, right? Maybe it's your kids, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your husband, maybe it's your wife. Well, may you um, believe what what God has just done, because do, do you see what just happened? Um, you came up here with with your neighborhood, all your junk, and and. He moved in. You took his broken body and his shed blood and, and he moved into your neighborhood. And so may you be like your father in heaven and move into your neighbor's neighborhood. Even your, your enemy. And, and you're not moving in with nothing. You're moving in with the very power of God, the very power that creates all things and makes all things good. You're moving in with the power of the slaughtered lamb, his body broken and his blood shed. And that can be painful at times but it's blessed, eternally blessed, eternally happy. In Jesus' name, I'm saying believe the gospel and become the gospel, amen. All right, if you'd like prayer, members of the prayer team, they'll be down front here.